Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with Matt and John, and today we're talking about another happy subject. Uh, in fact, Matt always tells me that these are my subjects. I get death and sin. And they get all the happy ones, resurrection, peace, joy. Have um, we lost Paul? <laughs> Paul, are you doing okay? I, I mean, you're just sort of... Can't, you can't hear me? Or it's like you're listening to it. Like are you not hearing me? Hearing... You can't hear me now? <laughs> we can hear you. <laughs> you guys, you got, me all, you got me all nervous and upset here. <laughs> Is there like an Academy Awards for uh, for podcasting? Like, can they say the award for best editing for a religious podcast? <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll all take the stage together, the virtual stage. Okay, I won't do a lot of talking. Oh, you got a lot to say. This is this is your topic. Because honestly, after listening to the last the last podcast, that me doing all the talking, so I can promise you that today I am going to Matt. It was good. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. The people want to hear what you have to say. Uh, you're actually the entertaining one of the three of us, Matt. Absolutely. I'm kind of slow, <laughs> low energy. John is full of information. <laughs> But you're high energy and interesting. You're a normal person, Matt. No, that's not true. That's amazing. <laughs> so we're we're doing. I think this is we're following. We're still following Douglas Campbell in this. And Campbell, I you know, in reading a chapter, he's so accessible. And sometimes I, I read him and I think, oh, people aren't going to understand that he is really doing something quite different. Uh, in the chapter, and he lays it out very nicely, that it's really quite a departure. But you, he's still using a lot of the, uh, he still uses the language of substitution and, and draws in lots of language, but of course he's describing it in a very different way. But anyway, today we're going to focus then, I assume, on both sin, why, you know, what is that? And why is resurrection uh, particularly addressed? You know, what is it that resurrection tells us about sin? Is that is that the way you would approach it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, you know how I'm approaching it. I sent you a question. Left. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think we were talking before about how uh, we would maybe just take it for granted, you know, that we already know what sin is. And on some level, uh, I think that we do. We do understand what sin is. But, Paul, we want to probably start with you on this because you are the – this is where you have done your work, and it's been great work uh, in the, the psychotheology of sin and salvation and in other places in your podcast. So let's start with you and just start with some basic definitions. So, Paul, what is sin? Okay, and the, the departure that I'm making is probably obvious. I'm not doing an etymology of the word or something like that. But I'll give you my definition, and what I'm trying to do in this definition is capture the full scope of the way I see it functioning uh, in Scripture. And so we could start out, sin is a systemic, holistic self-deception. And what I need, I'll, I'll pause here between each thing. First of all, notice I've used the term systemic. And so uh, it's already a departure. We're not necessarily talking about one-off events or actions 
not to exclude human behavior. But of course, the idea is that we need to ground behavior in a world, in a cosmos. And so the term holistic is getting at that. And the language is there in the Bible when it's talking about you know, the idea of the world that we're making a departure from. It's not God's goodness or God's world. It's this holistic, systemic system described as the principalities and powers, that the prince of the power of the air. It will even be described as the law of sin and death. And so it's a logic, it's a wisdom. The self-deception is key. It's a systemic self-deception. And this is obvious, you know, in the Genesis. But of course, I think if we miss the sense in which this self-deception is playing throughout Scripture, it is always or almost always, Paul is going to lay it out in Romans and other places and other writers and are going to talk about it in terms of a deception, but not just any deception. It's an, a self-deception. That is that we are both the ones that are deceived, and we are the deceiver. And this is the way that Paul will pick up the language of Genesis. You know, he doesn't really have a serpent. He just has sin. And so sin is this kind of animated force that enters in through, Paul will use the language of imaginings. And so this is, it's a systemic, holistic self-deception oriented to death. Here you could state this, you know, it's obviously one that kills it, but it's not simply that, but in fact it is in the experience of it. And the language here always fails, so I'm going to use language that doesn't necessarily get it, but it's death-denying, and you can deny death in any number of ways. Uh, even, you know, the idea is that death in some way is not the enemy. Death is not the final em enemy, but may in fact become a doorway or a means of access. But of course, the idea is that it's not oriented to death means it's not life-giving. It's not loving. It's the opposite of being in Christ. And so it's an oriented to death through a death-denying identity. This identity or this deception oriented to death is in Paul's de description, but also in various passages from both the Old and the New Testament, it is continually connected to pride. And I think pride is a good word uh, in describing this, but we need to have an anatomy of pride. Pride is not just, oh, I'm, you know, I'm snooty, but it is then a kind of refusal of reality. And it is a refusal then of prime reality, of God. But even this may not get it because it's actually people may embrace God, but of course they're not embracing the reality of who God is, but God in his word in Christ. And then it is through its active destructive practices. These are kind of the manifestation, or these are the, th are the things that bind us, that are connected to a self-binding desire. That is, it's kind of trap. You put your hand or foot into this trap, and the more you pull on it, the tighter it binds. If you think of this in terms of an, a Freudian death drive, what is the death drive? It's the drive to escape the death drive.
well, I'll stop there, but that, do you want me to say it again? It's a systemic, holistic self-deception oriented to death through a death-denying identity which refuses God and his word through actively destructive practices which feed a self-binding desire. Yeah, no, that's that's heavy. Also, I like that, uh, you know, pride isn't just being snooty. That's a great, great word, great way to put it. You know, for me, I, I often think of sin as, as just being that which would come between my union with God or in some way interrupt my uh, relationship with, uh, you know, the other or even myself or ultimately with God. But it sounds like you're you're describing sin as almost like a, a sort of a cosmic power also. So it's not just me sort of messing up, but it's also sort of this force before we go to, to Jonathan. Is that right, Paul? Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to capture in this, that it is an, a, almost it's whether it's an animate force, a subpersonal force, a spiritual force, I don't think that's entirely clear in in Scripture. You know, what is the origin and identity of that serpent? Or even when Paul will refer to the prince of the power of the air. In other words, sometimes he'll refer to it point blank as Satan, but other times he'll talk about principalities and powers. And so I think that we need both things. You know, they're right there together in Scripture. We have in chapter 7, you can describe this thing in Romans 7 simply as an orientation. And that's, of course, at one level, I think that's correct. It is this orientation. But when Paul comes to talk about it in 8, he will describe it as in some way linked up with spiritual powers, with angels even, with the powers that and the thrones and principalities. And so what I'm trying to do in describing this thing is to, first of all, we need to get away from a kind of trivialized understanding in which we think, oh, sin's when I do bad stuff, a kind of human behavior. I'm not excluding behavior, but I'm plugging that behavior, I'm plugging that psychology into of the mode that constitutes human beings. And so when we talk about a holistic, sinful understanding, part of this is we need to, to reorient our whole anthropology. What goes into making a person is all of these things. You know, what a person is not just a village, but a person is constituted in a world. And so I'm describing the makeup of this alternative reality, this alternative world, the cosmos and John and, and Paul, uh, a way of thought, you know, that it'll involve a transformation of the mind. It's even a, a philosophical orientation in both Colossians and Corinthians. So it's a logic, it's a mode of thought. But that needs to be joined to the, the notion that it's also a spiritual force. That's good. And, I, and again, I want to get to John, but I, wanna, I do have a question. So when I hear the word orientation, I think of something like an attraction, right? Because we talk about sexual orientation. That's like the first thing that, that jumps into my mind. It's like what you're attracted to or what you're drawn to in some way. Uh, is that how you're meaning it? Not, not specifically. That is the orientation we may be oriented to repulse something. But the idea specifically, the way to, that Paul uses the word law, and law becomes very problematic here, I think because of all of our misconceptions, you know, uh, of 
confusing what that thing is. And so, the, But an easy way to get at it is that it's a misorientation to the law. If you think of the command in Genesis, you won't eat of it. Paul will use the Genesis account in his account in Romans, but he's including the same, in other words, he's saying, well, this event takes place for a good Jew, but it takes place for a Gentile. This law, it could well be the Mosaic law, but this law could simply be authority. Everybody is subject to the symbolic order that we might identify with with the law. It is an orientation in which our what we do is in some way determined, but how we're determined. You know, you can do two things in connection to the law, both of which are wrong, but they may seem to be wrong in opposite ways. Someone might imagine, well, the law is a kind of screen. This is what the bill of goods the serpent is selling, right? Oh, well, actually, the law is a screen. God's holding back on you. He's holding out on you. And you need to penetrate the screen. You need to transgress the law in order to obtain God-likeness. Now, that's an articulation, I think, of what many of us go through. That's Paul's depiction of desire, that the law then becomes that you shall not desire, or you, you know, it causes desire or covetousness to arise. The other orientation is that we might imagine that we can obtain life through the law. This is the characteristic Jewish mistake. In other words, the law in both instances is made primary. This is the problem, that the law is not primary. It's not the source of life. It's not the determining factor of anything. That's, you know, it's God that gives life. It's in relationship to God. And so it's this misapprehension, this misorientation. I don't know, is it a fatal attraction? But in some way, it comes to be definitive for us. Mm, no, that's excellent. Johns, how would you want to respond or what would you want to add to uh, what Paul and his basic definition, as we said, let's start with some basic definitions of sin. And it's that's some heavy stuff, you know. Uh, but, you know, John, what would you like to add as sort of your, your definition of what is sin? Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't want to take anything away from what Paul is saying, but I think that for many people listening or thinking about what sin is, what may not be obvious, though I think it is implicit to what Paul is saying, is how sin is also a misrelation uh, by individuals to others and to the world, and as well as uh, by groups to others and the world. Also, there's a way I think that sin functions in a realm that the way we perceive the world is misconstrued and that we imagine we have some kind of basic knowledge that uh, ultimately functions as just little t truth, but it may actually be um, just totally opposite of what God might be doing. So the ways that we could talk about that would be to introduce the word that uh, Bernard Lonergan uses, which is bias. And it's a weird way of thinking about the word bias, but not totally unconnected from how we use it day to day. So if we talk about individual bias, this isn't exactly what Paul was talking about yet, but obviously connected, which is to say that we would have a bias towards ourselves 
or towards the limited goods that we would choose in exclusion to other people. And the way this would work out is often to do violence to the other. In some sense, we privilege our own good or what we take to be good for ourselves, and we don't mind if obtaining that good or those goods uh, results in the suffering or oppression of other people. And so we know that's one way that we misrelate to the world. There's also, of course, the sense that groups of people do this. Xenophobia, ethnocentricism are uh, common examples of this, that groups of people will get together and they'll privilege the good of their group or the good that they would take unto themselves, and they don't mind that that causes evil towards others. Then there's what I was talking about, the way we, we relate to the world in, the, in a sense of perception, the way we would think about or come to know the world. And sometimes what we would take to be common sense is actually uh, nearly demonic. So that uh, common example, well, I just you know have to kill or defend my family by lethal force. Well, that may or may not be uh, true even in the sense of defense of one's family, but we can acknowledge that most groups of people or most individuals, at least the ones in the United States, would take that to be sort of a common sense knowledge. When we do that, we're necessarily rejecting peaceable answers to resolving situations that would be ultimately more good. A way of thinking about that is we often privilege short-term goals or things that we would take to be good in the short term over and against what is good for us ultimately or long-term or what is good for our you know, groups of people in the long-term sense, even uh, you know, in an eternal sense, that we would exclude what God's plan for creation is so that we might obtain what we would take to be good for us here and now. And then the other way of thinking is what I think Paul is describing so well. And of course, all of these are linked. So it's not to say that we, uh, even though we conceptually might talk about them as being distinct forms of bias, uh, of course, we think there's a root problem, but that's a dramatic bias. How do I relate to myself? And there's been so much talk in the last you know, 100, 150 years about psychology and about a hidden life or an interior life and um, how we might explore our interior lives. And Paul was giving us different accounts of that. And I think one of them is a misrelation to the self. And this is what Paul described so beautifully. And the way that works out is quite violent. And so we would talk about that as a dramatic bias. But I think what is helpful if we're going to have recourse to the Christian tradition, because both what Paul and I uh, have articulated thus far wouldn't on the face of it seem to fit with how most Christians have talked about sin, although I think that there isn't really a, a big difference. And that would be to use an old-fashioned word, concupiscence which is to describe how we love. And do we love finite things over and against one another such that we privilege certain things uh, even to the exclusion of others or other people? And that would be uh, to describe concupiscence. We love wrongly or we don't love wisely because we don't ultimately love God and we don't ultimately recognize the world as God's good creation and other people as bearing the image and the likeness of God, whom which will be with in eternity. So this is, of course, C.S. Lewis's point at the end of his sermon, The Weight of Glory, when he talks about, he says something to the effect that next to Jesus Christ and the sacraments on our altars, the next holiest thing we are likely to behold is our neighbor in whom God exists and dwells. Uh, if we miss that, 
and we don't love others rightly, it's probably because we don't actually love God single-mindedly. So there's a way then of uh, that I want to mirror what Paul is saying, that this affects our perception, this affects the way we come to know, because ultimately knowledge and love are connected. But when it is affected in that sense, when we don't love rightly, or we don't love all things in relation to God, uh, it's also inherently violent, whether that we would want to raise distinctions to talk about how that works out in our individual relationships to the world and others, our group relations to the world and others, um, our relation to just common knowledge or even our relations to ourselves. Okay, no, that's good. Paul, before we move on to our discussion, and I think it could be a very fruitful discussion on Romans 5.12, is there anything you'd like to add to what John was saying before we transition to that? Yeah, I mean, the topic is, you know, so huge. And I think what John and I are both doing is we're showing that this thing is such a huge category. And part of the way of apprehending what it is, and in fact, I think the primary way of apprehending what sin is, is to recognize that actually we can't talk about this thing apart from salvation. That's the way Paul will talk about it, that we only understand it retrospectively. That's true in the case of Paul's own biography. He was an expert in sin as a Pharisee, He knew all about the law. He knew all about being ethical and religious. And he will tell us his biography from two perspectives. Uh, In one perspective, when he was a Pharisee, he was perfect. He was without sin in regard to the law. And it was in this period that he was a killer. He's a terrorist. He's part of a cabal of terrorists. And yet he imagines that this then is the means, this zealous religiosity means that he has access to God that other people don't. And he sees other people then as kind of the enemy that need to be destroyed, Christians in this instance. Uh, We could relate this, you know, in many directions, obviously, too. We have religious terrorists, but I think there's a whole form of the religion that would tend to tell their story in the way that Paul as a Pharisee tells the story. He, he has no notion of what he is. He's a killer. Uh, he has no access to who he is. So he, he will retell the story in that same passage in Philippians and say, well, now all of this is like garbage. And he sees himself then in a Christian perspective. He is the chief of sinners. Here's the irony that meeting Christ, he recognizes what sin is. It's this violence that John is talking about. It's a religious zeal. It's a righteousness even, misconstrued, misconceived. But now he, you know, he'll say two things that would seem to be counter to one another. He is without sin in regard to the law, and he's the chief of sinners. That's the misorientation that you only get. In other words, I think we only comprehend how this thing gets a grip on us through religion, through culture, through ethics, through philosophy, once it is exposed in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I think that's what Christ is doing in part. I don't mean to 
reduce the purposes of Christ, but certainly this is what we mean by revelation in part. The revelation of who Christ is, the truth of Christ, is over and against a lie. We need revelation to break in because sin is a system that would close out this sort of understanding. And so if you just go through, you know, you could go through and begin to describe what is salvation. Well, salvation tells us what sin was in the first place. And this is Paul's program. You know, and if you think of his major theological treatise, he doesn't begin with sin. He doesn't begin somewhere else. He begins with Christ. And once you understand what Christ has done, who he was, then you can begin to talk about the violence John is describing, the death-dealing nature, you know, that's Romans 3, that people's, the very organs of their speech, their throats, their tongues, their their lips are deadly, that they've taken up, they embody, they're, they're a lie incarnate. I don't think we have access to that understanding. And Paul's just reading the Old Testament there. He's just quoting the Old Testament. But now he understands the Old Testament in a new way. He has a new interpretive principle. And so I think that, you know, we could, that, that needs to be filled out. We understand sin through salvation, and then you need to go through all the parts of salvation to understand how this thing had a grip on us. Right. And so our topic is resurrection and sin. And of course, we can't really have that conversation without talking about death. And we've touched upon that in, in past podcasts where we also talked about an orientation to death. And so in the past few weeks, we've made reference to Romans 5.12 and the different translations of that verse. And so I'm going to do a thing here. I'm going to read first from the ESV, and it might seem like sort of a subtle uh, difference, but we're going to talk about what's at stake in this verse. So the ESV translates Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, you're right, dot, dot, dot. That's how the ESV and most other translators, that's how they deal with that verse. Someone like, so David Bentley Hart says that this is a fairly easy verse to follow until one reaches the final four words whose precise meaning is already obscure and whose notoriously defective rendering in the Latin Vulgate constitutes one of the most consequential mistranslations in Christian history. And so the way that Hart translates Romans 5.12 is he says, therefore, just as sin entered into the cosmos through one man and death through sin, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. And so, John, I know you especially have done some work uh, on this over the last couple of weeks. So what's help us understand what's at stake here. What's the difference between the Latin interpretation and the Greek interpretation? Yeah, and you're right, Matt. It really is those last four words. And the, the idea being there in Greek, there's this phrase, epo. The question is whether or not that upon which or whereupon is referring to sin or referring back to death. Well, in the Greek, it's not that difficult to figure out because the way it reads is the epho is in a masculine dative and thanatos is the nearest mask. If you were to refer back, it's the nearest masculine noun to take as the subject of this. That's pretty straightforward. Now, of course, in the word sin in Greek is, of course, a feminine word, so it doesn't work as well. The construction makes sense as uh, David Bentley Hart's translating it. 
such that when you get to the end, whereupon all sinned, because death has pervaded all humanity. But what Jerome does in the Vulgate is to translate Hothanatos as the Latin morse, which is a feminine word. And so then there's no necessary grammatical link in between the two words and the meaning, uh, which is already hard enough to figure out once you get the translation correctly, is obscured even more. But what I think is at stake is whether or not the claim is that, whether or not Paul, St. Paul is making the claim that we have death in this world because all are somehow guilty of sin in Adam, or if we have sin in this world, that all are sinners because death has pervaded the human race through Adam. Who, so you, you get a double move, right? Because in the beginning, it is very much uh, straightforward that death has entered the world because of Adam's sin. The question then is, have we all sinned in Adam such that we now all have to die? That this is a punishment for death? Uh, probably not, at least in the Greek text. So that it's rather that, yes, death has entered the world through Adam's sin. I also think the best way of probably thinking about that isn't necessarily literally, but rather we receive an orientation that makes our mortality or finitude problematic for us because of this primeval rebellion against God, the sin of Adam, uh, which is to displace God through a way of knowing. You know, that's key in that Genesis passage. So now, though, we have this orientation to death, which causes us all to sin. So sin and death are linked up. This also already points forward to how resurrection is the cure for sin and death. Because if you cure death or this failed orientation to death, which is the reason that we sin, we necessarily then become a people who are set free from the bondage of sin. Because no longer do we fear our death, which is to use a certain type of language about this. We wouldn't deny our death. This is actually even the book of Hebrews, isn't that right? That uh, The problem of sin is that we fear the power of death. But we now can face our death as our, our mortal lives or our finitude, not as something that's problematic, but rather as a way in which... You know, even though we die, we will be with God. We won't. We won't be separated. So I think that's the the crucial issue there with the translations. That's excellent. That's very good. And Paul, I'm sure you have. You've got to have something to add to that. I don't have Hart's translation. I should have brought it with me. But he he does. He goes on through. You know, the rest of the passage uh, makes sense given his translation, uh, his understanding that. What will happen in an Augustinian? It's not, you know, is it Augustine's fault? I don't know, but it's certainly the translation that he had. We're going to get original sin, but then we're going to get the idea that people who do not, have not done anything, that some way they're sinful. You know, that's the problem this poses to us. That's right. I want to clarify real quick, Paul, before we go on. It's not so much that original sin is the problem. It's how we understand that, whether or not, uh, because original sin for Roman Catholics or for whoever really is referring to the sin of Adam or that this has caused an orientation that's failed. The question, and it's really more linked to total depravity or the, the idea of a total depravity than it is to the issue of original sin, because it's whether or not we have the guilt of Adam's sin 
such that then we are totally depraved and have no access to, uh, you know, our reason doesn't work. We're completely benighted. We're, com- we're going to suffer and die because of this. Or is it that not quite the case, which I don't think it is, but that because of the original sin of Adam, we have an orientation to death. So I don't think the right course is to say, well, original sin is the issue, uh, because we wouldn't want to end up being Pelagians. We don't want to say that, oh, well, the only problem uh, with Adam is it's not that there's an original sin that causes us issues, but it's just a bad example. I mean, something has happened to us. We're subject to corruption because of the orientation we have to death. But I think it's total depravity or it's an idea of something similar or akin to total depravity that really becomes the issue. Yeah, good point. And we all have a, a good point. friend who, who once told me uh, in, in Bible college, uh, he said, you know, it's not like sin is an STD, you know. That's right. Uh, and for the Orthodox, of course, the whole notion of an inherited guilt uh, is sort of a, a, it's logically incoherent, right? Like, and it makes mm-hmm. God unjust, right? It's like why would why would God consider someone uh, guilty for what someone else did? That's you know unjust. But uh, with with what uh, John was just saying, Paul, please continue on with uh, how you're saying Saint Paul elaborates on this sort of crucial distinction to make sense of his argument there in Romans. Yeah, I, everybody believes in in original sin, but it comes to take on a technical meaning that I don't think. Uh, the Eastern tradition will believe in, and it will be then made more perverse through developments of an Augustinian understanding that is taken up by Calvin. So, but yeah, at some level, everybody, and and we all recognize that something, uh, that things ain't right. The reversal there is that we recognize that what's not right is not a mystery. In other words, what is going to take place is there's a kind of obscuring of the text there because we really can't comprehend uh, experientially what that would mean. And so there's an obscuring of even how it's transmitted. Is it like an STD that it's passed on through sex? It's passed on genetically. In other words, or that it even doesn't involve the individual in any way. So we recognize that will and many things are caught up in this. But by describing it or understanding it, that actually for most of us, we can understand that it's an orientation to death. Maybe this is captured best, I think, is at Genesis 5. You know, we have another genealogy there, and it's the beginning with the genealogy of Seth. And it says that, you know, Adam was created in the image of God, and Seth then is in the image of Adam. That captures it. That in some way, our image bearing is a corporate image bearing that is marred, that we're not born into the world that Adam was born into, but we are then constituted as human beings then in and through the human family, through our particular families, our particular cultures. And so I think correcting the translation, it also then gives us access to being able to describe this thing. You know, there is in an Augustinian tradition a kind of blurring, not simply, you know, a kind of mystification, not simply of sin, but once we lose track of that, 
then there is a kind of mystification of salvation. And it becomes very easy then to, to make the whole thing a transaction between God and the uh, Christ, you know, God the Father and the Son, in which we're not really directly involved, that we don't have access to either category. And so I think it's a huge mistake. Obviously, we, we can't put too much weight on this one passage. But the idea is that now we can begin to lay out experientially. And I think in a strange way, you know, this is my work within a Freudian or Lacanian psychoanalysis, what they're going to return back to and recognize in chapter 7 of Romans is what the, th the, the theological tradition in some way may have missed. And that is, you know, I, I just think that the psychoanalytic project of describing the failure of human interiority is there in Scripture, and there's healing to be had in Scripture from this failure. But we really don't think of salvation in terms of a therapy, of a therapeon, of a, of a healing. Not that we would want to simply reduce it to that, but certainly we want to include the notion that there is something wrong with us, that we have an analysis of the disease, that there's a prognosis, there's just what the disease looks like, and in Christ then we can begin to understand how the disease is undone. It's this orientation to death that becomes a kind of consumptive, controlling factor in our lives that resurrection directly addresses. Yeah, so whatever else, you know, St. Paul is doing there in Romans 5, it's, he, he seems to be making the argument that, you know, death reigned through the one and that life now reigns through uh, Jesus Christ. And then Hart, you know, very strongly translates uh, verse 18. So then just as by one transgression unto condemnation for all human beings, so also by one act of righteousness under rectification of life for all human beings. So John, we may have already hit upon it, but is there anything else that you would like to explain or define when it comes to original sin? What I, I want to make clear is that original sin itself isn't the problem. It's the way that doctrine has has been used in conjunction with this idea of total depravity, which may be a temptation in the West, you know, even though it's it's ultimately condemned actually in the Council of Trent, and original sin gets further clarified because of uh, mainly because of the Protestant Reformation. But it is a temptation once you begin to misconstrue verses like this or once you get into a system of theology that is totally driven about uh, guilt and penalties and, and whatnot. But that's not characteristic of the entire tradition by any means. And I also would like to add that uh, I think that we don't have to wait until the advent of psychology to to begin talking about the interior life being rectified. That's actually what the entire uh, ascetic tradition of Christianity is about. Uh, it's about how to uh, how there is a way of desiring that is wrong and illicit and somehow leads to violence towards oneself or leads to uh, misrelations with other people. But there's also a way of life that is, is with Christ, that it's therapeutic. I like the word Paul's use of the word therapeutic. It's therapeutic in the sense that we we learn to love God in a way that 
fixes our misrelations with other people and with the world. So I don't think that that's necessarily missing out of the Christian tradition in any way, even if it's not something that the you know, systematic theologians are talking about. It's certainly something that's present in the ascetic tradition. That was, that was an idea, Paul, that we had for some content that could be cool. It was like, you know, we were kind of doing the thing on the thread, like, okay, what are the, you know, there's different ways that we could do it. We could say, okay, what are your top, what's your top 10 books? And to go through and say, why? Why is this book? And then John had a cool question. He's like, okay, well, which one are the three or five that awoken you from your dogmatic slumber? And it's like, well, that's another. But you haven't watched Rublev yet either. Well, and I'm especially not going to watch it now that, you know, Paul panned it the last time we were talking. <laughs> oh, he doesn't, you know. <laughs> Matt, you're riding high on the heels of the brothers. You can handle Rublev. <laughs> of the brothers Karamazov, I'm literally like on page 375. So like I'm in the middle of the difficult names. It's like, who? Oh, you're, I thought you finished it. No, not yet. I'm still okay, but but so you're you know you, you've, you're starting to get accustomed to that. This would be the perfect time to watch Rublev because you're already used to putting up with that sort of thing. <laughs> It is. It's like, who's this? Who's this? I mean, your patient is burnt up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's why when when I get into Russian stuff, I go on like uh, benders. You know, I just keep. You can't. Uh, you can't just dip in and dip out casually. It has to be. You know like, what? That's, really, that's very. That's a great insight because I've noticed that too. Because when I put it down for even a couple days oof. and I pick it back up, I'm like, all right, where am I? Who is this? You know, right. what's going on? Um, but if you just stick with it, you're like, oh no, you know, it flows pretty well, but you still got to sort through. And the other thing that at least with Dostoevsky that he does is like, of course he gives like people nicknames. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's just Russian. That's the way that they do. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I mean, everybody's got like three or four different names. <laughs> it's fun though. It's fun. It's weird. I mean, so the, the brothers Karamazov takes like a little bit of a weird turn, at least for me after Zosima dies and, um, Alyosha you know, sort of leaves the monastery because then the narrative turns to Dmitri, Mitya, um, and sort of his, um, I don't know, his descent into madness, I guess you'd call it. Um, it's good, but it's like, yeah, but my favorite characters are like not in this, you know, Zosim is gone. I'm hoping that Dostoevsky brings him back somehow, you know, at least his speeches or something. But like Alyosha, he's sort of, you know, not in the story right now. So um, it's great, you know, but it's just... Uh, it's a it's a mountain. I mean, that is a mountain. Paul, when's the last time you did the brothers? How, you've, you, I know you've read it. Has it been many moons? You know, it's it's kind of funny. I I can't remember at what time in my life I was reading it. It must have been. I think it was right after college, and I was going to graduate school, if I remember right. But I'd read it, and yeah, I just remember uh, I was. Uh, it just sort of consumed me. Alyosha, of course, became the ideal Christian for me. I just, I thought, oh, well, if you're going to do this thing, that's that's the way you want to be. But I can't, I honestly don't, uh, I, I don't remember the details much of yeah, it anymore. I can see. Because that's been, well, we don't need to stop <laughs> long ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I guess I, I love yeah. Alyosha too, but... My, I had that same thought with Zosima, of course, but he's like the ultra ideal. It's like, well, I don't know. See, I mean, that's the trouble with reading something like that after you're already married, right? You read, you're just like, I should go become a monk. But then you remember you have a wife. <laughs> yeah. I remember telling you, Matt, uh, a few years ago, I mean, we were at the International Conference on Missions because it was in 
Peoria, Illinois. And so I drove up to see Paul and Faith and you. And and I told you then and there that you should become an Orthodox monk. You did. And you know what? I'm not kidding about this. I prayed about that and thought about it. And I was just, well, so I didn't know if it was going to be an Orthodox monk. But I thought, and by the way, I don't know if you remember the conversation we had that night. But uh, that that raised a lot of uh, different issues for me in my my life. I was in the conversation about now. I didn't. I didn't name the podcast. This I want to make that clear. But it was like you know who's the better Christian, something like Calvin or Gandhi. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and it's like it was a great conversation. But how you know? It, it, but you're right. You did say that, and it did make me think. And I, I'll just tell a quick story that you know, for years and years, I had prayed for a wife. I said, Lord, you know, I just I, you know, send me a wife, send me a good wife, and it just didn't happen. I had different girlfriends and stuff, you know, and they were great and all this stuff, but I just didn't, I knew that they weren't the one for me. And then I finally got to this point that I just accepted being a bachelor. And I really did. I was like, I enjoy it. I'm actually liking being able to sort of come home from work and watch whatever I want on TV and I can do the dishes whenever I want and all that bachelor type stuff, right? Smoke cigars, drink whiskey, read books. Well, I, yeah, I don't know about all that, but, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, the, you know, I was sort of settling into it and I had kind of accepted it. I was like, okay, Lord, this must be your will, you know, for me. And it was such a strange thing. I was honestly thinking, I was like, I, I'm, I'm considering what Jonathan said all that time ago. Of course, I would need to become Orthodox first, but I was. I started, I started visiting the Orthodox Church, and then I said, "Well, I'm gonna." I backed off a little bit, you know, and kind of went to the Episcopal Church for a while. But it was during that time that I met Margaret, of course. Yeah, it was like the greatest thing, you know, that's ever happened to me. So, so the the monk thing sort of went away. That's okay, you know. I'm still, I'm still trying to. You're happily married. I'm happily married. It is definitely helping me in my spiritual life. She has been tremendous to my to my growth, and she's teaching me how to be a better you know person because she's a wonderful person. And women have that way about them. Yeah, I mean that's what I mean. I keep reading. You know, it's like when I read the stories in the New Testament, it's like, well, of course, it's the women who didn't abandon Jesus in this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they're than us, you know, they're better than the men. Of course, they're the ones who are there, and we're you know, we're the ones off you know warming ourselves by the charcoal fire. Which I've noticed the other day, by the way. You know, you guys probably know this, but of course, it's by the charcoal fire that Jesus calls his disciples back. Yeah, that's that's uh, Rowan. Well, you've been reading Rowan Williams' book. Uh, Paul, do you want to tell folks where they might be able to learn more? Uh, about forging plowshares or how they might be able to help. If you go to our website, we have a website, forgingplowshares.org. You can look at our blogs there that um, we do. The podcasts are available. And through the Forging Plowshares, we have the Plowshares Bible Institute. Uh, We just graduated two folks from the Institute. We have uh, several levels of, of peace theology that you can study. Our next class that is coming up is in the book of Ephesians and Philemon, if you're interested in that. And so the the community here is, I, I think we're a broad community. I include Indiana and a representative there and Texas. So, and if you would like to, uh, if you like us on uh, whatever media you might listen to the podcast on that, that point other people to our podcast. I sure hope, I sure hope I'm a part of the community. I've done the last like <laughs> 10 podcasts. I love how what was most definitive about that broadness of geography. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. We have Texas, the Indiana. We're just like, I mean, Paul didn't say, you know, India, you know, where we have listeners in India. I mean, know. well, or if you're in New Mexico, you're out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, too far west. We're not that broad. <laughs> uh, I'm always amazed that I hear I hear from people in Canada and Japan and in <laughs> India. So, uh, yeah, no, we. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was Texas. trying to be inclusive there. <laughs> even even Texas. <laughs> no, especially Texas. Good, good guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.